Good morning. Is this on? All right. Uh, we've been spending the last few weeks going through a series on who we are as a church, uh, different aspects of the church as a whole, individuals, our roles, responsibilities, and so forth. It's important to understand there's, there's really two layers to the church. There's the universal church, what the Apostles' Creed calls the Holy Catholic Church. That's the entire church throughout all time, throughout all history. It doesn't matter what culture you are in. It doesn't matter if you were a first century Christian studying in a home in Corinth, a third century Christian worshiping God in the catacombs, or a 21st century sitting in a yellow chair. You're part of the church, the universal church. And then there's the particularized church. And for you here today, that means Christ Covenant Presbyterian in Culpeper, Virginia. This is the church where God has embedded you to be part of this community, to spread the gospel, to reach the lost, to minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where he has purposed you to be today. I did not, and I won't say that the church is you or me, because the reality is that as Christians, we're not solitary, self-serving, autonomous creatures. As Christians, our very namesake means we've given ourselves over to Christ. We are slaves to Christ. Now, we do each have unique personalities. Our souls are like fingerprints. Everyone's different. But that does not mean we're to be self-focused, autonomous creatures. We declare Christ our Lord, our King. Apart from Him, we're worse than nothing. Because apart from Him, we're doomed. There are people who are going to languish in hell that wish they were simply nothing. But the reality is, they're going to feel the pain and anguish of not having accepted Christ. Apart from our Savior, we have no value, only to be burned in the flames like the fig tree that didn't produce fruit. As Christians, the very focus of our existence must be, by its necessity, the glorification of Christ. The individual is never the primary focus. We declare that we have forsaken ourselves for another, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and having forsaken ourselves, all that matters is our Lord. Our passage for this morning is found in the book of Malachi. And Malachi was the, the last of the minor prophets. And as Joe explained before, it doesn't mean it's less important. It just means it's a smaller book. They were not less well-known or less impactful. In fact, in the English language, a more accurate description would be the quicker-read prophets. Malachi was a prophet called by God to confront his chosen people with the sins that had really begun to define their lives. Sin had defined who they were. The primary purpose of the book is to warn God's covenant people about their sinful practices and the looming judgment from God that was coming. But it was done with the hope that would prompt God's people to return to him, that they would live righteously and align themselves with God's redemptive plan. The book of Malachi, Malachi contains four covenants that are discussed. First, God's covenant love for his people. The covenant with Levi, and that means the covenant with the priests. The covenant with the fathers, and it also discusses the covenant of marriage. God's people had subverted priestly worship, and they made divorce rampant 
failures, uh, fathers failed to leave their homes. And the worship of God had really been redefined into human terms. In fact, if you look at the book of Malachi, probably more than any other book in the Old Testament, it more closely parallels the modern culture we have of trying to change God from who he is, a holy and perfect God, to something defined in our terms. We try to change his morality as something that serves us or we think better fits us. That is something we see in our culture today, and it was being done then. But the book of Malachi also rekindles a future hope of something more glorious, a day coming that would see God intervene in the affairs of man, bring victory to those who obey God, judgment to those who do not. And for us today, this is the personal correlation. As New Testament creatures, we are God's chosen people. Something to remember is that when Scripture speaks to God's covenant people up until the time of Malachi, really until the time of Christ's coming, it was speaking to Israel. But since the New Testament age, since Christ's arrival here on earth, the covenant people is you and I, God's church. If you look in 1 Peter verse 2.9, it says that we are each holy priests. It reads, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's right. If you claim Christ as your Savior, you are a holy priest, a chosen people. Now, by the time of Malachi, the temple had been rebuilt. Sacrifices were reinstated. Feasts were resumed. But the dramatic promises of prophets like Zechariah and Haggai had not come to uh, fruition. This left Israel as a nation uh, disappointed. They felt disappointed in God. They felt like they'd been let down. God made these promises. We don't see them happening. We're confused. They start questioning God's ability to lead them. It led them toward a low regard for God. See, Israel needed assurance of God's love, and they needed a challenge to their disobedience. I encourage each of you to study the book of Malachi this week. It's a very short read. 15, 20 minutes, you can work your way all the way through that. But this morning, we're going to focus on one particular passage. In chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, it reads, For I, the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will you vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Because this is the word of God, let's pray before we consider it. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that this book we hold in our hands is not simply a historical record, 
or a collection of stories, but it is real and it is alive and it makes a difference in, in, in our lives, Father. It brings redemption. Father, it brings warnings of disobedience and it shows your love for us. God, I pray that this morning your word would speak loudly and clearly. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel there should be more to your faith? Do you sometimes wonder if the person sitting in a row in front of you, behind you, has a stronger faith than you do? It's a common question. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. Um, if you feel that separation from God, it's not God that caused it. God is always present. He is unrelenting in his pursuit of you. That distance you feel from God, it's not because of him. It's because of you. God doesn't change. He's the same God who sent his Holy Spirit to soften your heart and offer salvation through his Son. So what's the cause for the separation? Disobedience. Malachi begins his rebuke of Israel by declaring the words of God, I have told you. Malachi would bring a lot of very specific correction for Israel. But before he corrected them, God wanted them to be certain that he knew that he loved them. He assured them of his love. This set actually the foundation for their obedience, because if they loved him, they would keep his commandments. It was by not keeping his commandments that they became separated. And another word for that is disobedience. So as you hear this this morning, know this. God loves you. That separation you may feel is precisely because of his love. If God didn't love you, he would ignore you. He wouldn't cause discomfort as a prompting to bring you back to him. And it's precisely because he loves you so much that he gives you warnings, gives each of us warnings for our disobedience. Whether it's prophets in the Old Testament times or the scripture here today, God warns those he loves. Then God asks a question, where is my honor? See, through Malachi, God asked the priests of Israel why they showed so little respect for him. And they gave such dishonor to him in their sacrifices. They called God Father. They called him Master. Yet they did not honor him or show him the reverence that he was due. So how did the priests dishonor God? How did they fail to show him reverence? The priests of Israel, Israel were responsible for bringing the sacrifices and making them on behalf of the people. It was their duty to uphold the honor and dignity of the sacrificial system. Yet they offered food defiled to God. And they offered animals that were either blind or lame or sick. As declared in 1 Peter, you and I are the priestly order. So as the person responsible for bringing your sacrifice, you need to ask yourself the question, does it honor God? Is it the best you have or a remnant? In return to this challenge, the priest then asked, in what way have we despised your name? The priests weren't even aware that they had despised God with their actions. This shows it was a slow degradation 
It came by degrees. They probably did not know the extent by which their offense was and simply carried on as they had before. They slowly slid into despising God's name. It's not like they set out to dishonor him. It wasn't their intent, but they were nonetheless. A ministry which each of us as a believer is called to be involved in. It's far too easy to serve God blindly while remaining in sin. To do so with an almost mechanical indifference. This is religiosity. It's the act of service being worn as our justification. You see, just as he said to the priests, he wants each of us to consider our worship of him and our service to him. This is what is spoken of in Philippians 2.12 when Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, God wanted Israel's priests to think about this service to him, and he wants us today to think just as carefully about our worship of him and whether or not we are honoring his name. Richard Baxter was a great Puritan writer, and he carefully considered the walk of the minister. And as I read what he wrote here in a second, please remember that every Christian, you, me, everyone here, is called to ministry. It may be ministry in the home, it may be ministry in the workplace, it may be as a pastor, but each and every, every one of us is called to minister. Here's what Richard Baxter wrote. But consider plainly that the great and lamentable sin of ministers of the gospel, again, that's you and that's me, is that they are not fully devoted to God. They do not give themselves up wholly to the blessed work they have undertaken to do. Is it not true that flesh-pleasing and self-seeking interests make us neglect our duty and lead us to walk unfaithfully in the great trust that God has given us? Is it not true that we serve God too cheaply? Do we not do so in the most applauded way? Do we not withdraw ourselves from that which would cost us the most suffering? Does not all this show that we seek earthly rather than heavenly things, and that we mind the things which are below? While we preach for the realities which are above, we do not idolize this world? So what remains to be said, brethren, but to cry that we are all guilty of too many of the aforementioned sins. Do we not need to humble ourselves in lamentation for our miscarriages before the Lord? Now, I don't know what prompted Richard Baxter to pen those words, but I can imagine reading Malachi could have motivated him. See, even the offerings the priests made, which weren't defiled, were deficient. The priests and the people tried to give God what the government would not even accept as taxes. That meant they tried to pay the government first and out of the remnant of that, they offered to God. And this, this speaks to what to tithe on. A common question for somebody who's learning about tithing and says, I wanna, I wanna tithe, is should I tithe on the net or the gross? Well, I think that God's word here in Malachi, his condemnation to Israel makes it clear. It's gross, not net. You see, God's financial provision for you is not merely what remains after the government and your bills take the predominance. God's provision is everything you have received. 
Tithing is not paying your bills, putting a little aside for retirement, seeing you have $100 left and saying, I'll give 10% of that. God has given you everything you have. Now you may say, but it was the sweat of my brow or my intellect that earned my paycheck. And you'd be correct. But who gave you the health and the body to perform labor? God did. Who gave you the intellect? God did. The answer is plain. It is God who gave you everything. So why do we do this? Why do we fail to honor God? Early in his declarations to Israel, God says, Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances. God's unchanging and unrelenting love and pursuit of Israel should have just drawn them to him in obedience, but instead they rebelled. They presumed upon his faithfulness and his patience. And Israel is not unique to this ungrateful behavior. We do it too. That sin that you continually seem to get away with, it's God's grace that you haven't been punished yet. And that won't last forever. Dear brother, dear sister, do not mistake God's patience with permission. When we don't tithe, or we tithe a pittance, it is presumptive on our part to think that God will continue to bless us. We can erroneously perceive God's mercy as unending, though even a, a quick review of Scripture shows that there are limits and judgment is coming. A day will come to those who disobey when the mercy will cease and discipline will occur. It may be in this life, it may be at the judgment seat of Christ, but a day will come. In his book, Giving to God, Robert Laidlaw illustrated this thought. <clears throat> I'm going to paraphrase. He, he wrote, I go to a home where there's a little girl, five or six, and I give her a box of chocolates. And immediately she, she leaves the room comes back a few minutes later with chocolate all over her mouth and all over her fingers. In another home, I give a little girl a box of chocolates, and immediately she opens it up. And she says, please, sir, won't you have the first? And I say, no, no, I brought those for you. That's what I gave you. And she says, precisely, you gave me these. Please honor me by taking the first. Ask yourself the question. In which home are you more likely to go to and give that little girl another box of chocolates? That first chocolate back, that's the tie. In verse 8, God's word says, Will a man rob God? It, it seems crazy to think that a man could rob God. How could somebody possibly steal from him? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It is an expression of astonishment the way it's written, will a man rob God. It's astonishing because it's a brash and a daring thing to do. It's astonishing because it's shamefully ungrateful. Astonishing because it's senselessly self-destructive. And it's astonishing because it certainly will be punished. Is God too demanding? If he owns everything, what could my little tithe make a difference in? Let's turn it around. How would you feel if you were robbed? If somebody broke into your house and took your possessions, what would you do? You would demand justice. Would it matter to you if that person had more or less than you? No. 
You'd want them identified, you'd want them prosecuted, and you'd want recompense made. You'd want your stuff returned to you. What if your employer only consi consistently only gave you a portion of the wages that was promised? Would you say, no, that's okay. He's using it to pay his bills and save for his retirement. I'm good with that. No, you'd want what is due to you, what is rightfully yours. God calls it robbery because they had possession of what rightfully belonged to him. It wasn't only the tithes and offerings that belonged to God. In fact, everything we have belongs to him. Psalm 24.1 reads, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God does not normally demand everything from us. He allows us to keep most of it as managers on his behalf. But the tithes and the offerings are different. They are not given to us to manage. They belong to what the Lord calls my house, his church. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. Do you think God does not take this seriously? Do you think this is not important to him? This is the polar opposite of those wonderful words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, I long to hear those last words, but it is crushing to think to stand in front of a holy God and have him say, you have robbed me. Because God's people did not give as he commanded, they brought a curse upon themselves. God did not bless them materially or spiritually the way he would have otherwise. Their stingy hearts proved that they were far from God because God is the greatest giver. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't give 10%. He died on the cross for you. God gave 100%. Yet we struggle and we kick and we fight against 10%. When we do that, when we withhold the tithes and offerings that are due God, in effect, we're cheapening the sacrifice that he made. Many people with financial problems fail to do the first thing they, that is the right thing to do to get themselves out of this situation. They fail to obey and honor God with their resources. When we put God and his kingdom first, he promises to meet our needs. This speaks to the common excuse, but I don't have enough to give right now, or I'll give when I'm out of debt. It's still stealing what does not belong to you. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. This was the answer to their problems, to actually do what God commanded them to do. <clears throat> and to bring all the tithes to God. It wasn't that they didn't give anything to God. They simply did not bring all the tithes to him. We must not fall short as they did in giving God everything that he has asked for. Now, under the New Testament, under the New Covenant, are we commanded to tithe? Now, in the New Testament, nowhere does it state you must tithe. But the New Testament does speak in a positive light if it is done with a right heart. In Luke 11:42, Paul, addressing the church in Corinth, says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside 
and stored up as he may prosper. This is very clear. Paul tells us what to do. Not just if you feel like it or if it's convenient. He says we are to do it. It's to be done on the first day of every week. Giving is supposed to be regular and consistent with commitment. It's each of us, not just a fraction of us, or those that are wealthy or those that are retired and not raising kids. It's every single one of us. And it's as he may prosper. This means proportionate to what God has given you. It's also important to understand that tithing is not a principle. It's dependent upon the law of Moses. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 5 through 9, explains that tithing was practiced and honored by God long before the law of Moses. What the New Testament does speak with great clarity on is the principle of giving. 1 Corinthians makes it clear that our giving must be periodic, done at regular intervals, planned, thought of in advance. It's purposeful. It's proportional. We give in accordance to how God has blessed us. And it's to be private. It's not to be done as a show and, and a declaration of how good you are. As well in 2 Corinthians, it continues that it must be generous, giving more rather than less. It must be freely given, not out of guilt or manipulation. And it must be cheerful. We should be happy to return to God a portion of what he has given us. If our question is, how little can I give and still please God, then our hearts are not in the right place. We should have had the same attitude of some of the early Christians that said, I want to give as much as I can. I want to give more. God bless you so I can give more to your work. Giving and financial management are spiritual issues, not only financial issues. Luke 16.11 says, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Next in Malachi comes the most remarkable passage. In verse 10, God says, And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, since I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. It is really hard to find a comparable passage in Scripture where God, God tells his people to test him on something. Try me now in this, he told his people. It was as if God was saying, see if you can outgive me. Does this mean that if you tithe, Scripture promises you will become wealthy? Nope. And it doesn't promise you'll get back more than you give or anything like that. But it does promise that you will be blessed. And if in your mind you correlate blessing with finances, you don't understand the true meaning of blessings. But God's challenge to test him in this area does mean this. You will be better off for it. Today, the temple and the priesthood have passed away. But Malachi's challenge, his charge that, God, uh, that God's people rob him when they do not support the expenses of the church is just as valid. We may say, may we never be guilty of this great sin, but we have. To fail to give to the work of those who lead in worship or labor over you and bring you the message is taking from God. For these leaders are the Lord's appointed shepherds. When we do not support his kingdom work, we are show ourselves disdainful of the very covenant 
God has made with us. We are created by God for a purpose. Not the purpose we necessarily dream up or the purpose that we establish, but for his purposes. God created us to be managers. He's the possessor. We are stewards. Scripture also teaches us that man is accountable to God. This theme runs from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Godly stewardship of money reflects the reality and depth of our commitment to Jesus Christ. If you're asking yourself, does this apply to me, let me ask you, are you a member of this church? If you are, do you realize that at one point in time you took a vow to financially support this church? A vow. Not a flippant statement, not an offhand comment, but you stood up here in front of this body of believers and before a holy God and made a vow. Those membership vows are not to be taken lightly. Let's take a minute and review them. The first question, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? This is publicly acknowledging that we are lost, we are meaningless, we are hopeless without God's mercy. It is saying that we are nothing and all that we have comes from God. The second question, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? This is declaring Jesus is Lord and King and swearing your service to him at the cost of ourselves and all we have. This is declaring that nothing is ultimately ours, that everything belongs to him. The third question, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes followers of Christ? We took an oath to be the best Christian the Holy Spirit enables us to be. This has become our calling, our purpose. We live this way, not our way. Question four, this is a big one for this morning. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Our abilities include our energies, our passions, our focus, and our resources. You promised when you took those vows to financially support this church to the best of your abilities. Not minimal or sporadic or even reactive, but purposefully and prayerfully to the best of your ability. And the fifth question, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and its peace? As members, we agree to receive both edification and discipline. We agree to submit to the scriptures and the commandments it gives. Malachi was pointing out to Israel their sin. He was showing how they had broken their covenants with God and by showing them their sin, God was endeavoring to turn their hearts to him. After they had wronged God, stolen from him, profaned his name, failed to honor him, what did God do? He pursued them relentlessly. That is grace. His driving desire 
was restoration. That is God's grace. The main point of Malachi is not our failings, which are real and many and well pointed out in this book. The main point of the book is God's grace. What is unchanging is his desire to lavish that grace upon us, to give us mercy day upon day, but we must realize that judgment will occur. Now our God's pointing to a time in the future in the book of Malachi when his coming will bring grace. After they stole from God, God is telling his people that one day I will come, and my coming will bring mercy. When see, without Christ's birth, judgment would still occur, but with his coming, there's grace wrapped in there. Israel had sinned against the holy God who had chosen them. He had delivered them, protected them, and provided for them. Yet the purpose in his conviction was to point them in the right direction, to draw them to him, to show them that he could restore that grace-filled relationship that they had enjoyed with him. That is exactly what God is doing to us, to us, through the book of Malachi. In the midst of your sin, despite your offenses against the holy God, know this, there is grace. Understand his commandments, obey them, turn from your selfish ways. Accept the grace he offers, enjoy the restoration and relationship accompanies that grace and know that through a life of obedience you can please him in light of that grace obey your lord and king bring to him all the tithes and offerings bring to him out of everything he has given you and not just the remainder bring him all your tithes and offerings humbly and cheerfully bring them to him with Freely, with gratitude and praise for everything he has given you. Bring to him what honors his name and pleases him. And do not invite a curse upon yourself, but instead endeavor to hear those sweet words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it can be difficult to say thank you for your word when it can pierce our hearts and hurt so badly. But God, I'm so grateful that in the midst of that, your purpose in that is redemption. It is restoration and it is filled with love and mercy and grace. God, I, my prayer for us as a church, for everyone as individuals, but for us as a church, that we would exemplify obedience. That we would live lives set apart from the world lives that declare your glory through our words and through our actions, whether in public or in private. God, I pray that you would continue to bless us. You, do have, you have richly blessed us as a nation, as a people, and as individuals. No matter what our income level is, we live comfortable lives, all provisions given, all through you. God, I pray that daily we would recognize that you are the source of everything we have received and that we will respond in love and obedience to that knowledge and bring all the tithes and offerings into the storehouse. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.